Well, good morning again. It's good to have some of you back with us again. Western Bunny, welcome back. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. Last week we looked at the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. We saw Jesus as the Son of God who was tested in the wilderness for 40 days and was triumphant. This week we'll continue. We'll be reading in Mark chapter 1, verses 14, down through verse 20. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. God, you reign over all things. You are the king of this universe, and although mankind rebels against you, uh, we have yet to ever overturn your kingdom, Lord. I pray as we look into this passage, pray that you would give us insight, that you would move our hearts to submit to you and to delight in you. And Lord, we pray that in our day, uh, you would show your power, Lord. Lord, in our church family, and in our families, that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit, renewing us, transforming us, and uh, showing your glory. Lord, we pray that you'd help us this morning in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've talked a little bit about the Thanksgiving season uh, this morning, but we're, I think it's safe to say we're officially moving into Christmas season, now that Thanksgiving is behind us. We're moving into the Christmas season. Uh, you, of course, remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, and that was the city of David. That was the city that David was from and became uh, the, the birthplace of the king, uh, both for David, who was that key king in Israel, but then the one who would be the king of the Jews. He was born in Bethlehem as well. And you'll remember the wise men came and they wanted to see this one who was born king of the Jews. And upon hearing that, Herod wanted no part of it. He fancied himself as king of the Jews and he wanted to stay that way. So you'll remember he wiped out all of those children under the age of two to keep his grip on power. 
but an angel warned Joseph and the family fled to Egypt and God spared Jesus uh, and the, the true king had arrived on the scenes and that wasn't going to be stopped. And this morning as we look into this passage, we see this king of the Jews proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And as we think about verses 14 15 and then the call of the disciples, we want to receive the king's call in our own lives. We want to receive the king's call and follow him. So our passage opens up, we see that John the Baptist is arrested. We've just seen a little bit about John the Baptist in the verses preceding, and already by verse 14, John is off to jail. Now again, this just gives you a little feel for the way that Mark is writing his gospel. He gets to the point, right? Uh, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, by verse 14 of the first chapter, uh, we've got a prediction of the birth of John the Baptist. And in, uh, in John's gospel, by the 14th verse of the first chapter, John is still glorying in the incarnation. And the word became flesh, and we have seen his, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Uh, Matthew, by the 14th verse of his gospel, he is still talking about the Babylonian captivity and the line that's leading to, to Jesus. But not Mark. Mark's getting right at it. He's to the point. He's, he's moving along. We're already 14 verses into this at the arrest of John the Baptist and this public beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It says here that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Again, John's gospel records the events of Jesus in the first chapter, some of his ministry that he had in Judea. Mark doesn't mention that. Mark's not denying that. Uh, he's just getting to this point of the ministry. And he says, at this point, uh, Jesus came and he proclaimed the gospel, it says here. He came into Judea, or excuse me, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God in verse 14. Now, as God has given you opportunities... And when you have shared the gospel, what have you shared? What's the content of the message of the gospel that you shared as God gave you opportunities? And think of times when I was at a food shelf in Minneapolis at Jericho Road sharing the gospel there. Sometimes I'd sit down with people and get to hear about their physical needs. And through that, there was often conversations then to spiritual needs, asking being able to ask people at the time, do you know what the good news of, of the gospel is? Do you know what the message, the basic message of Christianity is? And a lot of times people just say, no, no I don't. Well, do you mind if I take a couple of minutes to tell you about it? And, and sometimes people would say, no, I, I'm just here to get my food. But a lot of times people would be, be open to hearing. Great doorway open. So, so what do you share at that moment? If you're in that situation, what do you share? I often like to start, if I'm, I'm starting with uh, somebody who maybe doesn't know much or anything about Christianity, I like to start at the beginning. 
Well, let's talk about creation. God is the one who made everything. Everything we see was made by God. And do you know what that means for us then? Well, that means that since he's the creator, he has rights over us. He made us, and that means we belong to him. Well, then there's the, the bad news that precedes the good news, of course, that although God made us, made us in his image, made us good, we chose sin. We've fallen into sin. All of humanity is under God's just judgment. And then you move on. But it didn't stay there. God has provided a way. He worked through his people throughout the Old Testament, worked through the, the nation of Israel. He's drawing a picture of, of what he's going to do. And, and at the right time, God sent his son into this world to come and live the life that we couldn't live, that, that we refused to live in our sin. And he died for us. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Jesus actually rose from the dead. First one to rise again and never die again. And in him, we can have life. And of course, he's, he's coming back. That day of judgment's coming. But today is a day that we can turn to him. We can find forgiveness. We can find acceptance. And invite people. When you get opportunities, those are some of the basic elements I think we want to share. Maybe we don't get to share every single detail every single time, but as we can point people in that direction, that, that's the gospel message that uh, I have tried to share. Uh, I'm sure you share something similar when you get opportunities. Uh, but to bring it back to our text here, it tells us that Jesus comes preaching the gospel of God. Now, what is the message that Jesus preached if he's preaching the gospel? Of course, some of those events that I just mentioned, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the, and the return of Jesus, those hadn't happened yet. Certainly the return of Jesus is still future to us today, but he hadn't died and risen again. So what is the gospel that Jesus is preaching? I think as we consider that, I think as well we see that along in that message, I want to note in verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This gospel message, I think, is tied to the kingdom of God. But it, there's more to it. There's something that he's preaching, that in light of which he's calling people to repent and believe. Uh, and to, to look at that for this first main point, is we're wanting to receive the king's call, want to look at the gospel in the Old Testament. And I want to think a little more together about the kingdom of God. I had a classmate in high school who asked me, if Jesus is the only way of salvation, if salvation's only in Jesus, well then what about the Old Testament? How did anybody get saved in the Old Testament? That's a fair question, right? How do people get saved in the Old Testament if salvation is in Jesus? Well, the simple answer is people got saved by Jesus in the Old Testament. They didn't see him in the way that we saw him, but that doesn't mean that there was no good news in the Old Testament. They were looking forward to him. The shocking thing is that the gospel is in the Old Testament too. Uh, you know, how far back do we have to go? Maybe it's in Isaiah. Maybe, maybe in the Psalms, how far back? Well, we, we can go all the way back to Genesis if we want to find the gospel message. I'll go back as early as Genesis chapter 15. We see elements of it. 
Genesis chapter 15. Remember, God had made promises to Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan. He would give him offspring, make him a blessing. And, and Abraham begins to wonder. I mean, he's, he's pretty advanced in years. His wife has had no children. How is God's promise going to come about? And, and he asks, how can this be? It says in verse 5, and, and God, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, will point to this account and he will show justification by faith here. It was accounted, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness by what? By believing. Simply believing. And that was righteousness. A righteousness from outside of Abraham to him. There's a picture of it. How about, is there any more? Can we go farther back? Well, yes, flip back a couple, just a couple chapters. Verse 12, this initial promise to Abraham. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, there's a, a blessing there that's going to be to all the families of the earth. Well, once again, the Apostle Paul sees in that something pretty important. If you want to listen, you can, or you can turn with me. Galatians chapter 3. Again, Paul's on the topic of justification by faith. He's talking about how those who are saved will be saved by faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9 it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, get this, the scriptures, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So the scriptures and God is preaching the gospel to Abraham. And, and what is the content of that? Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We just saw that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So then as those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, well, Paul seeing the gospel back in Genesis chapter 12. We can go farther back even from there. Just as soon as humanity plunges itself into sin, the first couple sins, and God brings a curse and brings punishment. We see in Genesis 3, verse 15, he's cursing. I'll go back to verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the earth. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there, the serpent, who's tempted Adam and Eve into sin, he will be crushed. His head will be crushed. And in the process, he will bruise the heel 
of the offspring of the woman. As soon as sin comes on the scene, God mercifully grants hope. Hope of victory, hope of restoration. He is preaching good news as early as Genesis. And the story continues to unfold throughout the Bible. In Moses, you have the giving of the law. And one of the main points of the law is that man is sinful and in need of God's forgiveness. If you walk away from the Old Testament law and you don't get the point that man is sinful, you didn't get the point. <laughs> you got to go back and read it again. It's written all over. There's laws related to sacrifice, laws related to purity. All of these laws that seems like the basic point is saying that if we want to draw near to God, we need something outside of ourselves to save us. If the Mosaic law taught man's sinfulness, then the history of Israel proved it. Just think of the book of Judges. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Think about First and Second Samuel and the sin that's played out there. The kings get so bad to the point that God sends the northern kingdom off into exile and says it's because of idolatry. And even Judah gets sent off into exile because of their sin and their idolatry. The history of all mankind has proved that sin. People today are still doing their best to prove it. No matter how much your society may want to deny the truth of sinfulness, it's written all over. It's written all over our world and it's written on every human heart. The Old Testament leaves a pretty bleak picture of human potential. Yeah, man can create all sorts of things. Amazing. The, the technology that we have at our disposal is incredible. Humanity can do all sorts of things. But our potential to sin always keeps pace with any other type of potential that we act on. The prophets of Israel called out the sins of Israel and promised forgiveness to the repentant and pointed forward to the one who was coming. The Old Testament continues to build on this theme that there is one who is coming. And when Jesus appears in his public ministry, he tells us that the time is fulfilled. Paul will say something similar in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. I, I want to read it to be exact here. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right time, at the appointed time, at the fullness of time, God sent his son into this world. Jesus, as he comes onto the scenes here in his ministry, he is stepping into all of that Old Testament hope. He is the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation. In so many ways, Jesus himself is the gospel, who he is and what he has done. When Jesus preaches the gospel, he notes the fulfillment of time, the culmination of God's plan. And, as we'll see in his ministry, he points to the fact that uh, that plan centers on himself. In, in 
many ways, Jesus will be preaching himself. Remember from Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Come to me. So in many ways, as Jesus is preaching the gospel, he's preaching about himself. At the end of his ministry, after he's raised to a new life. He's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and he shows them from the scripture how all of these things had to happen and how they are, these, those passages are fulfilled in him. There is the gospel as far back as in the Old Testament, and it's building, and it's building, and it's building, and when Jesus comes on the scene, I think he steps into that. He preaches that. He continues to point people. How were people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved by believing the promises of God. And those promises were looking forward to Jesus. They had to uh, turn away from their own perception. They had to turn away from their own sin. And they had to look to God. They had to believe the promises that he gave. And those were coming to a completion in Jesus. As so you've seen a little bit then about the gospel that Jesus preached uh, let's, let's think a little more about that kingdom. Jesus says, verse 15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, throughout the gospels, if you are looking for it, you'll realize that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a lot. A whole lot. When I started looking, I was kind of surprised just by how many times Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. Of God, It's the focus of so many of his parables. He talks about the kingdom of God, of his teachings. And I uh, want to note as well, here he says the kingdom of God in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 4, in verse, uh, Matthew 4, 17, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. So what's the, is there a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? I don't think so. I think they're essentially uh, the same thing. I, I think... Matthew, with a Jewish audience, is speaking uh, in a more Jewish way, in a sense. The Hebrew can sometimes be more paraphrastic, talk, talk around something in a way. And so when Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, uh, I think he's referring to the same thing as the kingdom of God, because God is reigning from heaven. Uh, his, he is in heaven, uh, and, and that is his kingdom. So I... I I think essentially that's the, the same thing that Jesus is pointing to there. He tells us here that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek is literally, it has drawn near. So how can Jesus say that the kingdom of God is at hand? I believe the, way that he, the reason he can say that, he can say that the kingdom of God is at hand, is because the king has come. Because the king has come, the kingdom is at hand. He has arrived. The son is the rightful heir. He is the king of all things. Uh, even as God is king over this whole universe, his son is the rightful heir of this creation. Now, mankind has rebelled. Man still does not acknowledge Jesus as king and does not acknowledge God as king. And so we live in something of an in-between uh, the, the nations may rage, but God laughs. God has not been thrown off of his throne, and yet this world does not acknowledge him as their king. We see a picture of this if we turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, verse 
Psalm 2 tells us so much of the uh, current state of affairs in this world. Psalm chapter 2, David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Of course, that means the Christ. Against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is God's anointed. He is God's son. We saw that in Mark chapter 1. Remember the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the son of God. We already know the identity of who this Jesus is by this point in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand because the king has arrived. And yet, as we read the parables of Jesus, as we study what this kingdom is about, there's all sorts of things that Jesus tells us. He tells us parable after parable about this kingdom. One of the things that we see is that it hasn't arrived yet in all of its fullness. We know the rest of the story of this gospel. We know that Jesus will be rejected, that he will be crucified, that he will rise again, and that he will ascend to heaven from where he awaits the day that he will come. The kingdom is not here yet in a visible, tangible way. Not in the sense that it will be someday. There is coming a day when no one will be able to deny that Jesus is king. Those who are his people will see him. We will rejoice in our king. Even this morning as we sing about the king, we look forward to the day when that will be visible all over. Jesus is king. We, in faith, are, are worshiping and we're delighting and we're hoping and we're waiting. And his enemies will not be able to deny it either. Today, people deny Jesus, deny his kingship, deny God all over the place. There is coming a day when that denial will not stand anymore. No one will be able to deny that. That being said, does that mean that in Jesus' day, the kingdom came near, and then when he ascended to heaven, the kingdom left? I don't think so either. Uh, I, I think as we read the, the scriptures and the parables of Jesus, the, the king has sent his spirit to be with us. The call to enter the kingdom still stands. Yes, it's future. Yes, it's tangible. One day we will be in that. Uh, and yet, today we can still enter into the kingdom. You can't get on a plane and fly to the kingdom of God. It's not a country. It's not a place. It's not a building. Uh, but you can enter the kingdom of God by faith. You enter the kingdom 
You become a citizen of the kingdom when you believe in the king, when you kiss the son, when you give him the honor that he is due. That's how you enter the kingdom. You become a citizen of that city. You become a citizen of that kingdom uh, even as we walk this planet. When we receive the call of the king, we repent and we believe on him, we become citizens of his kingdom. Jesus becomes the king of our lives. We are not the king of our own lives any longer. You know, either you are king of your life or Jesus is king of your life. And when we gather together as his people, we get glimpses of that kingdom, even as we wait for it. Nathan often likes to talk about the, the New Testament image of ambassadors, that we are ambassadors of God and of his kingdom. Uh, we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul talks about himself as an ambassador. Uh, perhaps in, in some ways our church family together, we are like an embassy. We are an outpost of that kingdom. We, we are a place where people can get a, a picture of what it looks like when Jesus is king. What it looks like when God reigns over the lives of human beings. Now we are not the kingdom of God in some tangible way as if the property boundaries of this church are now part of the kingdom. And it's not a physical place yet. But we are the people of the king. The question for us that we want to ask is, does our church family show evidence that Jesus is king? Do our families show evidence that Jesus is king? Do our individual lives show evidence that we have received Jesus as king? Who is king in your heart? Do you call the shots in your life? Or do you submit everything to the one who is seated at the right hand of God? No one knows when the current state of affairs is going to be forever changed. We've gone through some shaking over the last couple of years in our nation. You know, we, we've seen COVID come and we've seen political opportunism after that. And we have seen all sorts of things unfold. And the lives we live uh, are getting kind of back to normal a little bit, but they're not normal yet. Things have changed in our nation. Uh, but there is coming a day in which the change that's coming will make that look like nothing. There is coming a day of radical change in which God will change everything. And the question for us is this. Are we ready? Are our hearts ready for the coming of the King? Have we repented and believed the gospel? Of course, that's a basic question for us. Uh, have we trusted in the Savior? Is our heart ready for the day when it all goes down? But are, are we living in light of that? Are, are we living such that when the king comes, uh, it, it won't be a wild transition for our hearts? Uh, we'll have let go of our kingdoms on this earth and we'll be waiting for the kingdom. We'll be waiting for the king. We cannot say that Jesus did not give us fair warning of the coming kingdom. It says, as far back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
uh, another day is coming when the time will be fulfilled. We want to be ready for the day when it comes. Uh, we've seen then a bit about the gospel and about the kingdom. Uh, that's been all a part of our big point number one, which is receive the king, receive his call. Uh, much shorter now, we'll look at verses 16 to 20 and the call to follow Jesus. Read these verses again. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat uh, with the hired servants and followed him. In our passage here, Jesus calls the first four disciples to himself. Uh, the word disciple, it's not used here, it's used of these men in chapter 2, verse 15, where they're called disciples the first time in Matthew's, or Mark's gospel. The word for disciple in Greek is mathetes. Uh, it comes from the verb manthano, which means to learn. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a student. A disciple is a learner. It's somebody who learns from another. A disciple of Jesus is one who learns from Jesus. You could even say one who learns Jesus himself. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, uh, Paul, in telling the, the Ephesians of what kind of lifestyle they are not to live, he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. As disciples of Jesus, we spend our lives learning Jesus. We, we are students of who this Jesus is. We want our lives to reflect him. We are transformed to look more like him through the events of our life that God is leading us through. And that's the way it should be. Now, uh, we've just been talking about the king and the kingdom and the fulfillment and all of these things going on. This seems like a pretty modest step for the king. Uh, he, he calls together a small group of disciples, and it was in them that he invested. And among the 12 disciples that we'll see that he calls together, there were three that he invested in especially. We meet all three of those here along with Andrew. We see Simon, who's called Peter later, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, uh, Peter, James, and John uh, were there with Jesus. We'll see later in the transfiguration. They're, they're with him in, in crucial moments. Jesus invested in these disciples, and he tells them that uh, as they've been uh, in their trade, working, fishing, he tells them to uh, follow him. He's going to make them fishers of men. They will be going out avidly after the souls of people. Not just going out avidly after fish, learning their trade to bring in the big haul. Rather, they're going to be going out seeking souls. They're going to be fishing after people. And what do these four do in light of the call of the king? They leave it all. Uh, Peter and Andrew says they leave their net. They leave it. <laughs> they go. They follow 
the call. They hear the summons and they respond. John and, and James here, it, you see some of the audacity of, of this. They go so far as to leave their father in the boat with the hired servants. I don't know, I'm reading into this a little bit, but I'm guessing that dad probably wasn't happy. You know, he can't just whip up a couple more adult sons to take over the trade. It probably was a pretty big endeavor. If they've got servants there that are a part of this, they probably had something of an industry going. And they leave it. They leave their dad in the boat and they go. Jesus reprioritizes our lives. And we, we see from John's gospel that Peter and Andrew were first disciples of John the Baptist. This is in John chapter 1. Uh, and that when John speaks, declares, bears witness to who Jesus is, they leave following John and they go and they follow Jesus. Uh, but that happens before this, so they've been around before this. But I think this is the decisive moment. This is that moment when they're no longer following Jesus, learning a bit about him. They're, they are leaving everything. They're leaving their trade behind. They're leaving everything and they're following Jesus. And for each of us today as those who have repented, those who have believed, those who heed the call of the king and are following him, we, we come to that moment, that decisive moment. Will we follow ourselves or will we follow Jesus? Will we do our own thing with our lives? Or will our lives be for God? Will we spend our lives finding ourselves? Or will our lives be for God? Will we spend our lives learning Jesus? Are we going to live according to our own rules or according to his rules? Will we follow our heart or will we follow the Savior? We have to come to that moment in which we are sold out entirely for Jesus. That's, that is for every disciple of Jesus. We might not uh, be one of the 12 disciples. Our lives might not look like that. We might not uh, let go of our vocations that God has given us. Our, our lives will look different than what these original 12 disciples, eventually apostles, looked like. But we're still called to follow the Savior every bit as much. Our lives are still to be lived following him, learning him, being his disciples. That's true for us. That has not changed. Our, our lives are to be sold out for this one. If he is the king and he will reign and rule over everything, which he will, then we want to be about his kingdom. We want to be about learning him, following him. We do belong to him. We are subjects in his kingdom. And today we get to live that out in our lives. That's a privilege for us. We, we get to be the ones who follow this king. And as we look farther into this gospel, we're going to see that this Jesus has power. We're going to see his power at work as he comes into conflict with sickness, with demons, sin, we're going to see his authority over all of these things. It will be for another time. If the men would prepare for communion and Erica would come to play.